live stream? If you haven't gone to the table yet for Sermon Club, we're going to meet now. that moment of anticipation. I'd like to welcome everyone who's joining us right now for our live stream. Uh, There's only one part of our service here at Chelsea Community Church with City Temple. Uh, you can come down and be part of the whole thing uh, each Sunday morning at 11 a.m. Or if you want to join us online for the whole service, just drop us an email and we'll send you the Zoom details. Uh, if you have your Bibles with you, Let's turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. Today I'm beginning a uh, sermon series uh, through at least 1 Peter, maybe 1 and 2 Peter. Uh, and I think it's one of the most important series that I've preached for a while. I've just had such a sense of importance about this series for us and what the Lord's going to do. Don't know exactly why fully, but uh, we'll start there in 1 Peter chapter 1. And before we pray... Uh, before we read, let's bow in prayer. Gracious God, thank you so much for your word. I do thank you that we can trust it, and I thank you that it's true. And I pray, Father God, that by your Holy Spirit, through your Son Jesus, you'd speak to us today in your word. And Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would rest on me, that I can proclaim your word to your people today, boldly and faithfully, just as you desire. For we pray all this through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Peter writes, he says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time 
the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you, in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. May God bless to us these readings from his holy word. I don't know if, if you're like me, I've been really glued to the television the last uh, week or so, just watching events unfold. And, and I find myself, as I've watched the people come and uh, pay their respects in the queue and the sacrifice that they make and everything, uh, to really be touched and from time to time just well up within myself and, and just want to cry and, and weep alongside many, many others. And it's, it's kind of strange because I never had the privilege of meeting the queen, unfortunately. Uh, I'll meet her in heaven, thank God, but I uh, never had the, the privilege of meeting her. And, uh, and it's just been an amazing thing. But I wonder how many of the people who have marched past her coffin over these last few days have recognized fully what's on top of the coffin. I know we've noticed the flowers, and of course you've seen the crown, and of course you've probably noticed the scepter, but what is that little ball that sits there? Kind of has a cross on the top of it. I wonder if people know what that little ball stands for. It represents that Jesus Christ has dominion over the world and dominion over the king. And the king has a responsibility to represent Christ to the world. It's a powerful symbol that has been there for all to see, even though many people haven't realized what it is. But it's a symbol that I think for me reminds me that the United Kingdom is no longer a Christian nation. The United States is no longer a Christian nation. Yes, certainly our laws are founded here in the United Kingdom on the Ten Commandments. Ever since uh, uh, King Alfred, I think it was, 
way, way back, long before Queen Elizabeth was queen. And certainly that's interwoven into our life, and the church is established church. That means the, the government recognizes it as the church of England, the established church. But that doesn't mean that people acknowledge it or even go to it. Uh, in fact, the United States is no longer a Christian nation, if it ever was. Yes, our nations have some degree of heritage in Christian belief, but really, I don't think anybody could argue that either nation is a Christian nation or that any of the nations of the West are genuinely Christian nations. More than half the people in the UK right now would identify themselves as atheist or non-religious, secular, having no belief whatsoever. Many estimate that there are no more than 5 to 6% of the entire population of the United Kingdom that actively follow Jesus. And lest we think that the United States with its big churches and lots of people running around uh, seeming to do Christian things is a lot better, the, uh, the average in the states is estimated maybe 6 to 8% of Americans who are genuinely following Jesus Christ. And that, of course, doesn't even take into account the other nations and what we call the West. The idea of Christendom really no longer exists. Christendom meant that people would tend to lean toward the church, that the church had a position of privilege and prestige in the society. But that is no longer the case. And I've seen that even as, as long as I've been a minister. I remember when I was first ordained, if I'd go to a hospital, and uh, any hospital in the United States and say, yes, I'm a pastor, and I'm here to see someone, immediately I would have deference. Immediately the, the nursing staff and the doctors would recognize that I'm somebody who's coming alongside of them to help for the healing and wholeness of that person. And the whole system was geared to welcome me and encourage me in the work that I had to do. And now today, saying that you're a chaplain unless you're formally recognized as such, gets you nothing. And sometimes it even gets you quite a bit of disdain. At best, most people in the West today are apathetic toward Jesus and Christians. At worst, we're seeing increasing hostility. And I think a lot of people are struggling now. A lot of Christians are struggling now. I see this especially amongst Christians in the United States. Not as much here because we've understood the difference. We've understood how our society has changed quite a bit. But there are many American Christians in many large churches who have no understanding of the shift that has happened since the 1930s in the United States. Because they, they felt like the United States was home to them. They, they kind of assumed that, you know, I, I, everybody who grew up here would grow up as Christian, and if they didn't believe now, they'd believe eventually, because after all, they're an American. And so many American Christians, you hear a lot of voices, a lot of clamoring uh, for the right president, or the right governor, or the right law, or the right 
move, uh, member of, of the Supreme Court are the right thing to, to come up with some kind of shift so that somehow the United States would be restored to its Christian heritage and Christian foundation, not realizing that that's not going to happen. The change is progressing on, and it's a change that's progressing on, I think, in large part because we're progressing on toward the second coming of Jesus. But now in saying all of this, uh, please don't hear me doom and gloomy. Oh, that almost rhymed. Uh, because I'm not. I believe in the triumph of Christ. I believe in the triumph of the church of Jesus Christ. I believe that the church of Jesus Christ, properly understood, is going to continue to press forward in victory and we're going to see God's kingdom come, and we're going to see God's will be done in ever-increasing measures here on earth as it is in heaven, but we're not going to see it through the government. We're not going to see it because some sportsman comes to Christ, and suddenly everybody fawns over Jesus like they fawn over the sportsman or sportswoman. It's not going to happen that way. It's going to happen in the way that God planned for it to happen from the beginning. And so I'm not gloomy. I'm not depressed. I'm not discouraged. I am hopeful and faith-filled and ready to move forward and anxious to see the global awakening that God is going to release on this earth very soon. Very soon. Maybe more than a billion people will come into the kingdom. I don't know, but maybe. Maybe we'll see the day, as I prophesied before, when China is actually known as a Christian nation. Maybe we'll see the day when other nations that start with P, that many people here know about, will be known as a Christian nation. Who knows? Who knows? God knows. God knows. But we cannot rest on our laurels thinking that we're a Christian nation. In fact, so many people under 60, if you look at the United States, and I look at the United Kingdom, and I look even up on the Isle of Lewis, and we love the Isle of Lewis, as you know, passionately. We love the Christians up there, and they're such committed followers of Jesus, especially the older adults there, but there seems to be a whole generation, maybe two or three generations, of people under 50 or 60 who are not following Jesus, who were raised in the church, whose parents are passionate followers of Jesus, and they've walked away from it. And you kind of say, why has that happened? I think it's happened because so many people assumed, their parents assumed that they would be discipled by the state because they were raised in a Christian nation. So everybody's saying it's a Christian nation. So my kids are going to go to school and they'll get Christian values. And my kids will watch television. They'll get Christian value because we're a Christian nation. And that's not true. They've been discipled, but they've not been discipled as Christians. And that's why so many have fallen away. And so many have rejected Christianity because they've been inoculated with a little bit. And the idea that, uh, that all of a sudden our society is going to be redeemed simply because we get the right king or the right prime minister. It's an illusion. It's not true. 
What's worse, much of American Christianity over the past 50 years has actually conditioned us towards certain expectations about our lives that simply are not based in biblical promises. They're based in American prosperity, financial prosperity, but not based in biblical promises. Most Christians and churches have not realized that there's been a seismic shift in our world, in our Western societies over the last 20, 30 years. And there's no going back. There's no going back. In fact, Solomon says in Ecclesiastes that anybody who says, oh, the former times were better than these, they're not wise in doing so. They're not wise in doing so. We need to understand that we're going to face increasing hostility, especially if we meddle in anything. You know, most people in our society today are happy for there to be Christians in churches as long as they don't meddle. You know, as long as they don't get involved in the government, as long as they don't get involved in their businesses, in the marketplace, as long as they get, don't get involved, you can be whatever you want to be. People are just not that interested. Now, we're experiencing a kind of blind apathy toward us. And quite frankly, most non-Christians, they look at us today as something that's rather strange and alien. I, I wanted to, to buy some of those gag alien uh, antenna to wear, but I thought it would be disrespectful to the queen, so I didn't do that. So you can imagine me wearing that and dressing up in my alien costume because quite frankly, that's how non-Christians see us. We think that, oh, non-Christians are going to see us as nice, normal, regular people, but they don't. Non-Christians look at us and say, you're weird. What do you mean you don't sleep around with anybody you feel like sleeping with? That's strange. You know, what do you mean you get up? early on a Sunday morning to go to a building to meet together and listen to long, boring talks and sing silly songs. That's strange. That's weird stuff. And that's how people see us. They don't understand our values. They don't understand our lifestyle. They don't understand what we do and why we do it. They don't understand our churches. They don't understand our mission. You know, there's nothing of that in our society. We might as well be aliens from outer space. Talking some space language when it comes to that. Now, I get a little bit of this. You know, I understand it because, as you know, I'm not a UK citizen. I, I, you know, we've talked about becoming citizens, uh, especially when Her Majesty was alive. But it's expensive, you know. That's not, it's a lot of money. So we, talk, we think about it and pray about it. But I'm an alien. I often walk around thinking about that old song, was it the police or sting? You know, it's a, I'm an alien. I'm a legal alien. I'm an alien in New York. You know, except I'm not in New York, you know. And I, but I'll walk there, you know, I'm an alien in London, you know. So, and and it, at times, people looked and said, you talk funny. You use strange words that we don't fully understand. You have some interesting values. Uh, and, you know, and sometimes people look at me like that. Other times they say, wow, it's so sweet that you live here. And, uh, 
And, and, then, and then sometimes people look and say, well, we like America. What's wrong with you that you live here? You know, you get all these kinds of things, right? Because people, people don't get it. But I understand, even though this place has been my home, and I consider it home, and if someone says, hey, Rod, what time, when are you going back home? I'll say, oh, probably about 4 o'clock this afternoon. You know, I'm heading home. You know, because it's, it's home for me, but it's not home for me. I'm in this place, but I'm not of this place. And so I understand a bit of the dynamic that we're facing now as Christians. I'm an alien. And actually, we're all aliens because that's what Peter was writing to. That's who Peter was writing to. He was writing to people that he called strangers or aliens or resident aliens or sojourners. You can use a lot of words. The word exile, by the way, that, that's used in the ESV, it's one of the few times that I really disagree with the ESV. Because an exile means that you were kicked out of some place, right? And we've not been kicked out, but we are strangers in a strange land that sometimes speaks a strange language. And actually, that's who Peter was writing to. And I think that the letters of Peter are applicable to our lives today more than maybe any time in the last hundred years. Peter really speaks into our reality and our situation, and really it tells us what it's like to live as a resident alien, to live as a strange sojourner, to live as a stranger alien, and some are stranger than others. And Peter's talking to us. He's talking to us as we live in this world right now. He's telling us how it is that we need to live in order to make a difference. How it is that we need to live in order to see God's kingdom come. How it is that we need to live in order to be effective as God's people. And that's what he's dealing with. And he's also telling us some things that we need to avoid, some things that are incredibly dangerous. And so that's why we're going on this journey together in 1 Peter. And 1 Peter starts out here uh, in this first section that we read today. He's addressing us as individuals. And this is, it's important to get this because he talks to us kind of as individual Christians together. And then he's going to move into talking to us as the corporate church, the corporate people of God, which will be next Sunday. And then how we live as individuals corporately for the remainder up until we get to the end. And then he, he gives us some more individual insights. And many times we'll read Peter and we won't get that transition, but it's a really important transition to understand. So in the passage that we read today, Peter is saying, okay, I'm talking to you all as individual Christians. This is what you need to know about yourself. These are the things that you need to have in your life, the things you need to focus on. And these are some of the, and this is the basis of it all. And then this is what you need to do about it. Because for Peter, it's never just, oh, that's good information to know. It always results in living in a different way. And so that's what we're going to look today. Because for Peter, 
uh, he's talking, he's telling us how to live fruitfully and faithfully as a strange alien. So we've got to know who we are and what we need to do about it. And Peter tells us who we are in that address. In that open address, it's kind of complicated, right? Uh, instead of dear Christians, it's a pretty long address. But it's important because in that opening address, Peter defines who each of us are as individuals in Christ Jesus. He says that, that followers of Jesus, that true Christians, are chosen aliens. They're chosen strange sojourners. Oh, we need to understand ourselves, chosen in Christ Jesus. Now, what does he say here? He said, okay, this is what a Christian is. A Christian is always going to be a strange alien in the world. But you need to understand about this, this about yourself as a strange alien. First of all, he says, you have been chosen. Now, the word elect is a good, decent translation word there. But I like the word chosen because it's more personal. God has chosen us. God chose you. God chose you. Why did God choose you? You, personally. God chose you. Why? Well, Peter doesn't really tell us. He says, you were chosen by the foreknowledge of God. Now, that's a, I'm not even going to begin to try to go into that concept today. Uh, the Greek word there is the same uh, word from which we get the word prognosis. You know, when a doctor gives you a prognosis, he's saying, well, because of your symptoms, this is probably what's going to happen. You know, but the purpose of this is not to say, this is how God picks people. The purpose of this is to say to each one of you that by God's grace, and totally by God's grace, he knew you before he even created anything. And he chose you before he even created anything. He loved you and chose you by his grace, by his sovereign choice. And that's an amazing thing. And again, that's not to try to say why you're in and why other people are not. What it is to say is to say, you're in by my grace. You've been chosen. You are chosen for a time as this. You've been chosen at the time of life in which you were going to live. You've been chosen. And Peter says, you've been chosen in the sanctification of the Spirit. In other words, the Holy Spirit, when God chose you, he put his Holy Spirit inside of you who caused you to be born again, as we're going to see here in a moment, and set you apart for God's purposes and made you holy, cleansed you from sin. The Holy Spirit did all of that, and the Holy Spirit empowered you. So he's in you to conform you into the image of Jesus Christ, and he'll come upon you to empower you to live for Jesus. And that's the third thing. You've been chosen and sanctified in the Holy Spirit for obedience to Jesus. In other words, Jesus is the king, and our purpose in life is to obey Jesus. Now, many times people will come to me and say, Rod, I don't know what I'm supposed to do with my life. I, I need a purpose for my life. And I say, well, I know the purpose for your life. Obey Jesus. That's the purpose. Well, I don't know what that's going to be like 10 years from now. Well, I don't know either, but you obey Jesus today. And I guess and guarantee if you obey Jesus today, 
and you obey Jesus tomorrow, and you obey Jesus the next day, you'll get to discover whatever it is that you're obeying Jesus for. But you have been chosen and sanctified for obedience to Jesus and for sprinkling of his blood. That means you've been forgiven. And that's good news. You know what? You've been forgiven not only for your past sins and not only for your present sins, but also for your future sins by the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus. When Jesus died on the cross, how many of your sins were in the future? Every single one of them. Was there any sin that Jesus didn't know about, that God didn't know about, that you were going to do? No. God's God. He knew it all. And yet, in that moment, you were sprinkled by the blood of Jesus and forgiven. Now, that's not a license to sin, as we're going to see here in a moment. But that means that if you walk in the fact that you're chosen by God's grace, that the sanctification of the Spirit and obedience to Christ, you're not going to mess it up. And too many Christians live with this fear, oh man, I, I, I did this, I really messed it up. I really messed it up. Well, get back to Jesus. Get back to Jesus. And so we need to understand that this is the truth about us, that we were born again by the power of God, according to Peter. We have been born again, again, according to God's mercy. It was his grace, his mercy. We have been born again by the power of God so that we are completely new and different in Jesus Christ. And so Peter sets out and says, this is who you are. And if you forget who you are, you'll start running into problems. For example, if you forget that you're a strange alien and start thinking, well, hey, this world is my home, you're going to have problems. I guarantee it. You'll have struggles that are needless struggles. So you got to remember who you are. And so Peter says, he kind of goes on and says, now, in order to remember who you are, and in order to live this life that you're called to live because of who you are as an individual in Christ Jesus, you need two essential things to live, to flourish, and to endure as a strange alien or a strange sojourner in this land. Two things are needful. Two things are essential, according to Peter. Now, remember, Peter's talking to us as strange aliens. He's not saying that, okay, just these two things and don't worry about anything else. It's these two things in the context of us being strange aliens that we need. Peter says the first thing that we need is a living hope. A living hope. We've been born again to a living hope. Now, hope is the expectation of a promised good based on the character and the ability of the one who makes the promise. Hope is an expectation of a promised good based on the character and ability of the one who makes the promise. Now, it's key here. It's got to be something that's been clearly promised. And a lot of times, Christians hope for things that haven't been clearly promised. Uh, but it's a promised good, and it's got to be based on the character and the ability of the one who makes the promise. So you might believe in God's promise for something in your life, but if you don't believe he's going to keep the promise, that his character is solid, or you don't believe he's able to do the promise, 
then obviously there's no basis for hope. But we have a living hope, a hope that keeps us going. And this hope is essential for our resilience and our perseverance. If we don't have hope, we can't keep going. If we don't have hope, we'll quit. I know this. There have been many, many times that I'm tempted to quit, that I'm tempted to walk away. I'm tempted to do something else. And I have to look on what God's promised and what God has done. And I say, okay, God, I know who you are. And I know that your promises may not always work out according to my expectations of them, but I know that you'll be faithful to keep your promises. And according to Peter, there are two, three things that we set our hope in. Three foci for our hope. These are the key promises of God in which we hope. The first one's in verse 4, that for an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven, that's in the heavenlies, for us. We have an inheritance that God's holding on that we'll get, but we don't get it until Jesus comes back. That's good news and bad news, you know. Because a lot of times you're like, okay, God, we want it now. Uh, The second thing, the second hope is for a salvation that's ready to be revealed in the last time, is verse 5. So there is a salvation. We have been saved, but we are being saved. And one day we'll experience our salvation in all its fullness. And that's our hope for that one day. And the third thing is the grace that will be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ, verse 13. That's our hope for the grace. Now, what does that hope mean? It means, if you're like me, when you make a mistake, you kick yourself, right? I'm like, oh man, I can't believe that I do that, or I did that, or I did that again. And uh, and you've got to have hope that grace is greater than your sin. Otherwise, you won't want to face Jesus in the last day. And our hope is that God's grace, as we are in Christ Jesus, is greater than our ability to mess things up. And it is. And those are the three primary foci of our hope, our focuses of our hope. And we also need to know what's not hope. You know, wishful thinking the desire that I want something to happen, you know, that I, it's going to happen, longing for some perceived good thing. You know, there's nothing wrong with wishing for things. There's nothing wrong with asking God for things. In fact, we're told to do that. We're told to ask God for situations and things in our lives. We're told to, to have a, a sense of expectation. But the focus of our living hope, the focus of our living hope are on these things that God has clearly promised, which will only be fulfilled when Jesus comes again, in that day when we stand before the Lord. So we can still expect God's goodness in this life. We will see God's goodness in this life, but the ultimate focus of our hope is in that future that God's going to bring to us. So the first thing Peter said, you got to have, in order to live as a Christian who is a strange alien, remember To live who you are, you need hope. The second thing we need is faith. We need that living hope and we need faith. And faith is choosing to trust and act often beyond our natural abilities 
based on the true knowledge of God and God's ways, founded in relationship with God through Jesus Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit. In other words, we have faith because we know who God is. And we know who God is through Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit. And so that faith is what keeps us going. We have to have faith in God, faith in God's abilities, faith in God's word, faith to know that the things that God's done before, God can do again and may very well do again. We need to have faith that keeps us going uh, every Sunday together with God's people. It takes faith to live our lives for the Lord, especially when everybody else is doing what they want to do and walking away from the Lord. We have to have that faith. And there's benefits for faith if you're an alien and living in an alien culture. Peter tells us that that faith is something that we are guarded by God's power through faith. Verse 5. So when you have that faith, you're living by that faith, God puts a garrison around you. God puts a, an element of protection around you. I can't tell you the number of times that I have been in situations that I should not have been able to get out of. But God brought me through. And God protected me. And I, and I look at some of those situations now and say, that's amazing. How is that possible? But it was God. There's a protection that we have and that we need that comes to us by faith. And it's a protection that comes by God's power. But it's activated, it's brought into our lives through faith. The second thing is that faith is what enables us to rejoice when we experience the pain of trials, testing, and temptation. And by the way, that word trials that he uses there, uh, verse 6, it means testing, trials, or temptations. It's a pretty broad word there. And Peter says, you can have joy. How in the world can I have joy when I'm going through a trial? The only way is by faith. Okay, I know God's doing something here. I know God has a purpose. I know that God's going to bring me through. I know that God's protecting me. So even though I don't like what I'm going through, I can have joy in the middle of what I'm going through. And Peter says that our faith will always be tested, but the genuine faith, that which stands the test, will bring praise, honor, and glory to Jesus when he's revealed. It's verse 7. So your faith that you have will always be tested. My faith is tested on an almost daily basis. So will yours. The severity of the test will vary, but that faith will be tested. And the outcome of our faith, according to verse 9, is the salvation of our souls, which we are receiving even now. So I said, that salvation is something we have, that we're receiving, and that will come to us in fullness when Jesus comes again. And part of that salvation are the healings and the deliverance and all the amazing things that God tends to do. All right. Salvation is here, but not yet here fully. So we need hope and we need faith as strange aliens who are Christians living in this alien land. Uh, but, you know, there's a lot of people that have faith and hope. Atheists have faith and hope. Muslims have faith and hope. Buddhists have faith and hope. Scientists have faith and hope. 
What makes our faith and hope any different? It's a big question that we have to ask. What is the basis for our faith and hope? You know, I could have say, oh boy, I hope His Majesty King Charles the Most Wonderful, I think that's his title now, His Majesty King Charles the Most Wonderful, I hope that he'll give me one of his Land Rovers. Now, I can have that hope, but it's not going to come. You know, it's not, it, it doesn't have validity. And if I build my life on that hope, I'm going to be a bitterly disappointed guy, you know. So, how do I know? How do I know? And Peter deals with that because he says we need to have the confidence that comes from knowing and believing the basis of our hope and faith in an alien culture. We need that. So what do we need? Both hope and faith have significant costs and require significant, difficult sacrifices in this world. Christian hope and faith is not easy. So we need that confidence. You know, I've, uh, I, I look so often at what the different things I could have done with my life other than serving as a minister or the different places that I could serve. I'm sure if I decided to be a lawyer or a business owner or remain in the United States and, and move into a larger you know, church, my life would have been different. Who knows, maybe it would have been better. Well, how can I possibly set aside those things to do the thing that God's called me to do? Why is obedience worth the sacrifice? Because I have confidence in the hope and faith that I have in Jesus Christ. I have the confidence to make the sacrifices. I have the confidence to live differently. I have the confidence to endure the hardships that I endure. So what's the basis of our faith and hope? Well, Peter would first say that it's the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. We know that we know that we know that Jesus has risen bodily from the dead. People saw it. They saw him die. They saw him when he was alive. We have the historic testimony of this historic fact. And that's why Peter says, God has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That is part of our confidence. But it's not the only thing. Peter says, there's also the prophets who predicted the coming of the Christ. He says, concerning the salvation... The prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you. Verses 10 and 12, 10 to 12. So we had people saying hundreds of years before Jesus came that Jesus was going to come that he was going to die on the cross, that he was going to rise from the dead. And you have places like Isaiah 53 and Psalm 22 that don't make sense out of, outside of Jesus Christ. So not only do we have the historic truth, Jesus is risen bodily from the dead, we have the testimony of all the prophets who prophesied this over hundreds of years. And they were all right. And then we have the third thing is we have the good news that was preached to us and the fact that we responded to it and received it and surrendered to Jesus through it. So the fact that we're here is a testimony to our confidence 
You know, it doesn't make sense outside of it being true. And then the fourth thing is the love and joy that we have and the love and joy that other people have in believing Jesus, although we've not seen him. Peter says, verse 8, Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Ultimately, we have the confidence in our faith and hope because our faith and hope are in God himself, as Peter says in verse 21. So these things give us the confidence that our faith and our hope are not misplaced. We have these testimonies. We have these evidences that are there for those to see. It's not just our experience, but it's also history. It's not just past history, but in terms of the prophets, it was prehistory, prophesying before history happened. We have all of that together. So, if we're strange aliens who are chosen, sanctified, following Jesus, and sprinkled by his blood, forgiven in Christ Jesus, if we're strange aliens who are living by faith and hope every single day on the basis of the resurrection of Christ, the predictions of the prophets, the fact that we were converted in the first place, and the fact that there are billions of people around the world who are believing in Jesus and filled with love for Jesus, never having seen Jesus, how should we live? We have a personal obedience required if we're going to live fruitfully and faithfully as strange sojourners in this world. In this case, it's personal obedience required for every Christian. This is what's required of you. It's not all that's required of you, but Peter says if you're going to live effectively as an alien in a strange world, in a strange culture as we are right now, there are three things that you got to do. Three things that need to happen. First, he says, set your hope fully on the grace you will receive in Jesus. We've got to set our hope fully on that grace, the grace that's coming to us, the grace that is ours right now. And we set our hope fully on the grace as we, as Peter says, gird up our loins. He says, prepare your minds for action. It literally means to gird up your loins. You know, if, you, if, you've got, uh, if you've got a long skirt on, you ladies know, and you've got to run someplace, you've got to hike up that skirt a little bit in order to do some running. That's girding up your loins. Uh, and thankfully, we men don't do that very much uh, anymore, but some places you still have to do that. You have to gird up those loins. And what it means is you've got to be ready to move when God tells you to move. If you set your hope fully on Jesus not on the things of this world, but on the grace that's going to be revealed, you got to be ready to move when God tells you to move, and you need to be sober-minded. Uh, that means you need to be clear-headed. You can't get intoxicated with the joys of living in this world and the pleasures of life. you got to keep your mind clear and sober and ready to move, and grace has to be your theme. Grace is your theme. It's not condemnation. It's not sin. Grace is our theme. But it's grace that comes, true grace that comes in Jesus Christ. So that's the first thing. Set your hope fully on that grace. Girding up your loins, keeping your mind sober, but moving ahead with grace is your theme. Second thing Peter tells us we have to do, uh, and this is the one that 
a lot of us squirm around, okay? Be holy in your way of life. You need to have a holy lifestyle. And Peter says, be holy in all your conduct. The word conduct literally is referring to your lifestyle. You need to develop a holy lifestyle, a lifestyle that is, that is set apart. And you do that as obedient children. So that, Peter tells you, our reference is to God the Father, to Jesus our brother. That's our lifestyle. So we develop the lifestyle, uh, and we have to have that holy lifestyle, and we have to, uh, a lot means also that we don't allow ourselves to be shaped by our passions and desires as when we didn't know right from wrong. You can't allow that to be your focus in life, your direction in life. So you need to be holy as God is holy. And God in Jesus Christ is our human example of holiness. And that's hard. How, do we under, how can we be holy as God is holy? Let me use some really relevant examples for us. Queen Elizabeth. Queen Elizabeth, we all acknowledge, was an amazing queen. And everywhere, people looked at her lifestyle and said, wow, she's so humble. She's so gracious. She has a good sense of humor. She's kind. She's not proud. And they look at her lifestyle and they say, what is the responsibility then for the royal family? They need to follow that example. And people, the royal family members, were judged on the basis of whether or not they followed that example, weren't they? What's the deal with Prince Andrew? You know, I, and I'm not trying to pick on anybody. We pray for him. We pray for his salvation and everything. But whatever he did, he did not live according to his mother's values. He did not have her lifestyle, and so he brought shame on the family. What about Prince Harry? And again, this is whatever you think about Meghan. I'm not criticizing people, but what did Prince Harry do? He allowed Megan to drag him down into a commoner lifestyle rather than her stepping up into the holy set-apart lifestyle of the royal family. And that's the tragedy. But that gives us the example. What does this mean? It means our lifestyle needs to reflect the lifestyle of Jesus. It doesn't, you know, you notice that it's not an issue of the clothes you're wearing or the car you drive or the food you're eating. There's some other dynamic. And people in this world, they think we're strange, they think we're weird, but one thing that they're looking for is does our lifestyle, the way our conduct in a day-to-day -day basis reflect Jesus? And if it does, they respond to that. That's a powerful, those are powerful examples for us. And the third thing Peter says here that we all have to do, we all have to live our lives or conduct ourselves, have our lifestyles with fear throughout the entirety of our sojourn, the time that we live as a resident alien. And, you know, I did a deep word study here. That word fear means, ready? Fear. There's no, there's no way to make it sound different. 
It means fear. We need to be properly fearful of God, our Father, because we have a God, a Father, who judges impartially according to what we do. We've been chosen, and he loves us, but he looks at our lives, and he doesn't say, oh, well, you're my son, so I'm going to let that one slide. And we are accountable for our lifestyles. And we need to conduct ourselves with fear because we've been ransomed from those old lifestyles, not by silver or stuff like that, but by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Before the foundation of the world, God chose us. And we are called to live that lifestyle with a proper fear of God. You know, and frankly, there are a couple of members of the royal family that did not have a proper fear of the queen as perhaps they should have. And we need to develop a distinctive lifestyle as Christians based on this healthy fear and respect for God our Father and the greatness of Jesus' sacrifice for us. This is our reality. And if we don't walk in this reality, all kinds of things will happen, and I won't take time to talk about those now. But we will experience so many negative outcomes if we fail to realize who we are and where we are and how we need faith and hope and those three key things that we're called to do, no matter what else we do, as resident aliens. We have been ransomed from those futile ways by the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. We must understand and believe who we are and act it out because it is glorious. And ultimately, we do not belong to this world. You do not belong to the United Kingdom. I do not belong to the United States. I belong to Jesus and to the kingdom of God. And as individuals in this strange land, we must live it out by God's grace and by the power of God's spirit to the glory of Jesus. Father God, thank you so much for your word. Lord, I thank you and praise you for who we are. And I pray, Lord God, that you would just continually remind us that we are aliens in a strange land and help us to live lifestyles that bring glory and honor to Jesus. You're such an amazing God. And we thank you and we praise you for the love that you've shown us through your son, Jesus. We pray all these things in his name. Amen. Amen. Okay, we're going to go before the Lord in the Lord's Supper. Sorry, I was a little wordy today. Uh, I cut out a whole section there. So uh, it's hard to tell when you start out a new, a new uh, series. Uh, anyway, uh, let's see. Uh, Olashina and, oh, Marcos, you're standing. Can you come and help? Oh, you're watching over the kids? Oh, well, does Marcos need to stay, or can I have him? Okay. I know we'll see you guys come on up and gather here. And again, this is table is for everybody who names the name Jesus Christ as Lord. She can stay up here. Uh, it's for everybody who names the name Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. <laughs> it's not just for our church, 
It's for the church of Jesus Christ. And we'll share together. Let's pray. <coughs> Excuse me. Father God, thank you so much for your son, Jesus Christ. Jesus, thank you for coming and dying on the cross and rising from the dead. <clears throat> Father, I pray that you would now bless this bread and this cup, that they might be for us truly the body and blood of our Lord Jesus, broken and shed on the cross. Use them to nourish us and strengthen us and establish us more fully in our hope and our faith in Jesus Christ. Attend to us now in the power